1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Believe in Betting Chicago. My name is Joey Christopoulos, and today's episode is brought to you by BetOnline.ag. The NFL season, it's in full swing, and you might not be at the game this year, but you can still be in on all the action at BetOnline. And from game spreads and totals to team player and coaching props, BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any place online, and there's always that online casino as well it never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining the pod today. We've got a returning guest here today and I'm so excited to talk to him once more. He is the host of Believe in Falcon's Flight. It's Brian Giffen. Brian, how are you today? Welcome back.
0: Doing great. How are you?
1: I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, I wanted to just bring you back because I feel like I wanted to maybe pick your brain a little bit on a couple of things here, maybe walk around the landscape of sports and get your opinion on some things real quick. But first, I wanted to just kind of ask you, you know, we kind of touched upon it the last time that you were on the pod, but you've been working in play-by-play for for decades now. And I just kind of wanted to hear and let the fans know a little bit more about your background in that area. And, and, and honestly, how did you get started and what, what attracted you, intrigued you to sports commentary in the first place?
0: Well, it's kind of a... Well, relatively long story. I I played football in college and injured a knee and was asked if I wanted to be on the broadcast. And, you know, after three plus years of drinking beer and playing ball and acting foolish in college, I kind of finally figured out what I wanted to do. <laughs> so it kind of went from there, to be honest. And I had had some interest in radio. I had done some campus radio station stuff over the years and it kind of all fell together. And suddenly, you know, the light was clear that that's what I wanted to do. So, uh, I was an FM radio DJ in Norfolk, Virginia back in, you know, like 1990 and very young. And, uh, actually got in a little bit of trouble for some blue humor. (laughs) And nothing that crossed the line, nothing that violated FCC, but some double entendre stuff, shall we say, that got me in a little bit of hot water. And I was uh, let go, believe it or not. Well, (laughs) probably not shocking from that radio station. And there was a minor league team in town that Well, not in Norfolk, but this was in the area. This was in Newport News, Virginia, that was struggling and didn't have a big league affiliation. And, you know, I thought, what the heck? I've always loved baseball. And, you know, I'm a former athlete and I'm a radio guy. So I contacted him and I'm like, you know, look, I could probably help you sell this. I could probably help you develop sponsors for this. And one thing led to the other. And I was hired there to do sales and to do media relations type stuff to try to repair some damage from previous ownership and help with that anyway and one thing led to the other i sold a bunch of billboards i sold a bunch of program ads and then the light bulb came on that hey if i can find a radio station and can secure enough sponsors can i broadcast the games and it turned out that of course they were thrilled with this prospect and my career basically took off from there. I broadcast those games for a couple of years and then moved back to my home, Indianapolis, because of a couple of family matters. And after a year or so of being home, I got a chance to do some fill-in work on the Indianapolis Indians broadcast, which is, of course, Triple A team now with the Pittsburgh Pirates at the time. They were with the Cincinnati Reds. But Uh, One thing led to the other, and a year or so into doing the fill-in work, I was hired to do full-time there as kind of the 1A or the 2 announcer that did four innings a game. And from there, I kind of progressed to where, in the interest of making the game sound as good as they possibly could, I started to learn about equipment and production and engineering and some of those things. And upgraded what they were doing to a much better sound over time. And it kind of dawned on me that as political as Major League Baseball is, that you know maybe if I learn as much of this engineering and production stuff as possible, it gives me a side door to eventually get to the big leagues. And obviously it eventually did.
1: That's awesome. I do want to ask you about minor league baseball in just a second, but I want to roll the clocks back just a little bit back to the beginning of this tale and just asking a question of uh, when you hurt your knee, was it the type of injury that took you off the field? Like you're not coming back or was it the type of injury that you tried to come back and you just realized that this just wasn't going to work the way that the injury was going at the time in your college collegiate football career?
0: Well, I was, you know, I was a receiver, but in those days they would call it a possession receiver by today's terminology. It's a slot. Good man. Yeah, I wasn't one of the fastest guys, and you know, would go to the sticks, get hammered, catch the ball, get a first down, that kind of thing. And it was a long term enough process to heal from it that I would have been past any eligibility to play anyway. So it kind of was a de facto end to my career. Although in Indianapolis, I did later play what they called semi pro football, but it really wasn't. It was just a bunch of guys that were adults that had jobs that got paid a few bucks a game to go out there and knock heads. But uh that was kind of the end of my playing career. And I guess to some extent the beginning of you know broadcasting, although again I had been an FM DJ and had kind of dabbled in radio a little bit before that.
1: And I do want to ask you about your philosophy in terms of uh calling games, your commentary Do you feel like that is a general principle, calling minor league baseball and major league baseball is the same? Or do you find that there are certain nuances to the professional presentation of commentary that maybe are a little bit different than minor league baseball?
0: Honestly, I've always believed it's the same. You know, you have to give the game the credibility that it deserves. The example I'll give you is that, you know, I've done college football for 16 years, and this season am not doing college football, this fall at least, because of the virus. They pushed Kennesaw State's season to the spring. But I picked up a gig to do a local high school's games here. So whether, in my mind, whether it's high school, whether it's pro, whether it's college, whether it's whatever, I think you still give the same justice to the game. I think you still paint You know, the pictures in terms of intensity of the moment, importance of plays, sequences, et cetera, et cetera. I think you do all those things the same. It's a matter of professionalism. And, you know, I think to me, at least, there's only really one style to do it, at at least where it comes to play-by-play, because the game, I think, deserves the credibility, regardless of what level you're at.
1: And – Just in speaking of the minor league players, you are talking about them unable to play this last season. I think that's a huge story that's kind of being swept underneath the carpet. You know, what do you think some of these guys are going through? Because in the minor leagues, you know, just like in the major leagues, you'll see players of all ages and shapes and sizes and different backgrounds and everything. But in the minor league, you know, those years are precious for some of those players. Can you empathize a little bit with just a guy that might be a 4A player, you know, 26- 27 coming up on maybe his last shot, not being able to play last year. I just can only imagine that it was really tough on a lot of those players.
0: Yeah, no doubt. You know, actually beyond just players, coaches, et cetera, I empathize with people in all those minor league front offices and stuff as well. (coughs) Pardon me. Because, you know, those are not people that are paid very well. Most are um, uh, certainly a big number of them were furloughed. And, you know, you suddenly have to go out and find something else to do amidst this economic crisis caused by this illness situation. It's kind of unforeseen times and and unprecedented times in a lot of respects. The other thing about the minors is, you know, the the professional baseball agreement expired at the end of what would have been the 2020 season. And the future of minor league baseball is certainly in question in terms of what it's been like, it will not be the same. They're contracting 40-some franchises, which, besides players, I think equates to a whole lot of people that have struggled to get into affiliated baseball. It kind of equates to those people, after finally getting an opportunity, suddenly being on the outside looking in again. And I'm not a big fan of what Rob Manfred's approach to baseball has been at all. In fact, I think that he's doing a hold my beer for Roger Goodell, to be completely honest, because the game in so many respects has been, at least this year, and hopefully some of it will change back, was so bastardized this season, if I can use that word. And when you start putting a runner on second base in extra innings, a la beer league softball, and call that Major League Baseball, come on. You know, and then the element of making relief pitchers face at least three hitters. So situational lefties now are no longer, and strategy now, are no longer part of the game apparently because of these morons that want to attract these younger, hipper audiences. And there's no certainty that they will, but the one element that may come out of the process is they'll run off the existing fan base that they have. And I think the ratings would indicate that was the case this year.
1: And that's the strangest part, too, as well, where there's a disconnect between it didn't really shorten the games. It didn't make the gameplay move a little bit smoother. And if anything, you're just adding more rules for this supposed millennial modern fan that, you know, that we can't really we don't really know who this fan is that they're trying to attract to. Well, adding more rules and gimmicks and gadgets and stuff, I don't really see how that was necessarily supposed to speed the game up and make it more attractive for younger fans. I do also want to get your perspective because we're heading into an offseason right now you've been in the game for a long time where the facts are the facts, the MLB and among many other sports, they're losing what they're probably going to lose over a billion dollars. Some are saying maybe yeah. 2 billion. A lot of teams are looking at losses of a hundred, 150 million. And I just have some questions in that area. I completely understand that when you do lose that amount of money, you do want to contract and, and, and hold up the purse strings. But personally, I see it a little bit of a different way. These are some really you have some rich individuals running this sport right now, and you're talking about contraction in minor league baseball. You're talking about less opportunities and jobs, even in the lower ranks, let alone baseball. This seems like a bit of an owner's moment to perhaps cap the earning potential of the players and the people that they employ moving forward. How do you see this offseason shaping up for a Major League Baseball?
0: Well, I'll give you a couple of perspectives on this. First and foremost, I think – And this goes back a little to what I said about Rob Manfred. I think he's a commissioner that's emblematic of what the management structure in baseball has become. And what I'm getting at here is a catchphrase I kind of coined a few years ago, too many suits and not enough uniforms. Mm. You got too many people that didn't play the game, didn't coach the game, didn't scout the game that are analytics types and Harvard MBAs that are rising to the top ranks of this sport a sport that none of them or very few of them played certainly didn't play very well and you know when you have people that don't understand nuance and don't understand elements of the very sport that they're trying to run i think this is the end result
1: yeah i agree with you and i just find it i just find it really curious to see how this is all going to shape up, because we are driven not just in sports, but in general, our our business capitalism model in America is often to, you know, what's your profit margin and then next year double it. And when you have teams that are losing so much money this offseason, it's gonna be really interesting to see, you know, how these different teams, and I'm looking at my Cubs team specifically, how they're necessarily figuring they're gonna pare down while all still also still keep hopefully fans coming into the stands next year in 2021. I just find it really dubious when a team, especially like the Cubs is going to be crying poor. And especially when these major league baseball players are, are, they're heading towards labor strife right now. And you're going to see all these contracts come down and maybe you're going to see ticket prices go up. So I'm just kind of asking the questions of how they're sort of planning on making that money back. And are they going to do it in double time or are they just going to not spend any money for a season or two? create maybe an inferior product or have some teams kind of get broken up unfortunately that are coming together like do you see that with the Braves are the Braves in a situation right now where they have to make some tough financial decisions when they're right on the doorstep of winning
0: now it's interesting the question I mean uh, the the, as far as how they approach their fiscal models, strategies etc it's anybody's guess how that's going to go I know that Many teams have laid off a number of people. But, you know, prior to that, and part of where I, I get so salty about the suits, uniforms thing, you know how many scouts I know that have spent their whole lives in the game, they played it, maybe made it to 4A, even some to the big leagues that became scouts. And the only thing they know is baseball. And then at 50 years old, They're given their walking papers because now the team has some geek that grew up in mom's basement that knows how to use computers to do analytics. And suddenly these are people making decisions about the game. So to me, the future is kind of a... A bit of a mist where all this goes. The Braves, you know, it's hard to say. I I know they lost a bunch of money because they didn't have any attendance. But to be honest, they have the worst television deal in all of sports right now as it is. I don't know if you know this. When the franchise was sold from Ted Turner to uh, Time Warner back in like 2004, and I hope you're sitting down, they signed – a 25-year, $25 million TV deal. What? Yeah, that doesn't run out until something like 2027. So from the standpoint of TV money, they're obviously very, very strapped compared to other... I mean, how do you compete with... (laughs) The Phillies, the Dodgers, that are bringing in eighty to hundred million dollars a year in media rights, the Yankees, you know, the Red Sox, so many of these teams. How do you compete with that? And at if I may, in, in the, a year. Yeah,
1: in the entertainment industry, I I would know the the woman who plays Flo on the Progressive commercials. She makes more than a million a year by herself yeah. on TV. <laughs> so I don't know if that's apples to oranges, but that gives a little bit of an idea of how horrible that deal is.
0: Yeah, yeah, and I mean there are executives I won't name names but there are a couple executives one in particular still with the Braves in a fairly high position that signed off on it. So you talk about short-sighted though and not knowing, you know, what the future holds to sign that kind of deal is just incredibly ridiculous. Now, when they opened what was SunTrust, I guess now it's Truist Park. Of course, that is a a whole complex that's a lot more than just a ballpark. It includes condominiums. It includes retail space. it includes apartments. it includes office space. and the the th- promise then was, well, this is revenue that won't count against you know the uh, luxury tax. This is revenue we won't have to share of any kind. And of course, now, where it comes to, you know, the, the subject of spending any money to improve the team, they cry poor that they're busy paying off the debt service on the facility. After telling, I remember back in 2014, 15, when they announced the project, oh, you wait till 2017 when, you know, we'll be able to go and sign free agents. And they've done some of that, but not to the level, they still cry poor on everything. And I think Liberty Media made something like $140 billion last year, and that's who owns the franchise. And I think that's another thing that really is a flaw with the Braves franchise is the fact that there's no local owner. There isn't an Arthur Blank. You know, there isn't a Tom Ricketts. There isn't the Steinbrenner family. There isn't a a vocal, public, local owner that has passion for the team cares and wants to do what's necessary to win. They're just another line item on a corporate budget. And
1: that's the hardest thing for me to figure out just moving forward is you're seeing more teams getting their own channels, their own networks, the Cubs associated with marquee network. And I just have some questions about they keep talking about wanting to grow the game. And at the same time, they're all creating their own channels and their own subscription models to be able to watch your team. So you're just cutting up and divvying out these teams and these fandoms more so than you ever were instead of, you know, maybe, I know it's tough to say that you know, baseball is a very local game. It's hard to make you know someone in Chicago a Braves fan, but you can still enjoy the game and all of its, you know, its breadth on something that would be a little bit more accessible than just on their own channels and their own streaming networks. I do got to get you out of here on one more question. You've been in the game for a long time. I just want to hear your thoughts on the White Sox hiring Tony La Russa.
0: Yeah, interesting hire. I guess he's back to – try to do unfinished business there if you know many may or may not remember that's where his managerial career started and you know it's <laughs> one thing about Tony Larusa, and it may drive him crazy this is assuming the National League has the pitchers hit again as I feel like they should <laughs> but uh, with the DH you know it takes away Tony's favorite thing the double switch over the years in baseball nobody drove you crazier in terms of slowing down a game with weird pitching changes, substitution models and double switches than Tony Larusa. And I look, I admire and respect everything Tony Larusa accomplished. I've met him a couple of times in passing certainly. Spoke to him on more than one occasion when he was in an executive role with the Arizona Diamondbacks over the last several years. But you know, in the end he is a winner. He's a guy that has some rings, he's a guy that's won some World Series for a couple of different franchises. So at this point, I guess why not, although many would say Rick Renteria really didn't do a bad job there. Well, you talk about a guy that's a little snake bit on his manager opportunities. You know, he got pushed aside for Joe Madden, and now he gets pushed aside for Tony La Russa. You know, who's going to hire him next? If George Steinbrenner Sr. was still alive and Billy Martin was still alive, I could fully see a scenario where they hire, you know, Rick Renteria to manage the Yankees and then they bring back Billy Martin for the seventieth time or whatever it is. It's crazy.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say, you know, you take him to Baltimore and then yeah, eventually, yeah, yeah. you'll re- replace him with Don Zimmer. Or you know what I mean? We'll see, yeah. Yeah. see what happens no there yeah about I, it. I'm really curious about La Russa where I just and my final question for you is just it feels like everyone is asking about the fit because the Sox have a very young, talented team and he's 76 years old, but my my pushback on that is that the team is already really talented enough. Tony doesn't really need to come in and have that big of an overhaul effect of like laying down my principles and my rules. I just think he needs to come in there. And like you said, just bring a little bit of that deep dive detailed information. And he knows the game. It's not like he's, he's not the geek in the basement. He's the one that, you know what I mean? He created the model that the geek I think is copying now to this day. So I don't know. I think he could possibly have some success on the South side with just a young team that already kind of is good. He just sort of needs to be a steward and someone who just looks over that talent. Maybe he doesn't necessarily need to develop as much as people think.
0: Well, you hope so. You hope that the fact that his credibility and his accomplishments over the years, that they would leave him alone and he wouldn't get phone calls from the analytics folks in the dugout during the game telling him what moves to make. That's another disturbing thing that's become fairly commonplace in baseball is a lot of these people based on these analytics models making decisions about play in games, how you use your bullpen, you know, who you pinch hit in certain situations. So I would hope because of what he's accomplished, who he is, the fact that he's a hall of famer of the whole nine yards, that they just leave him alone and let him manage the team. And, you know, maybe at 76, he's laid back enough that uh, let the team go out there and perform. You'd certainly hope so.
1: And Kevin Cash took the Rays to a World Series this year, and there's reports out there that he didn't make the lineup once this year. So – That was news. That was news to me. Uh, That's not the baseball that I'm really used to. And I do hope that obviously they're going to let Tony La Russa have his fingerprints, I think on the team and the decisions in game, pregame lineup, construction, all that stuff. I think he's going to have a big, big handle on that. Brian Giffen. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm going to get you out of here. This is betting Chicago with Joy Christopoulos. You can check out believe in Falcon's flight with Brian Giffen and Robert Taylor They bring you great analysis of an Atlanta Falcons team that's playing a little bit better, got off to a tough start, but they are feisty. They are competitive in some games, and I really do appreciate you coming back. I always enjoy talking to you and hearing your insights, and I just appreciate it. Thank you so much, Brian.
0: Hey, it's my pleasure, man. Anytime. Excellent. Well, hopefully we'll have you back sometime soon.
1: This was Betting Chicago with Joey Joey Christopoulos. Today's episode is brought to you by betonline.ag. We got more pods coming up the rest of the week, so make sure you come back. And check it out. Until then, be well, be safe, be good to each other, and we will talk soon.
0: Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.